The fourth largest jury award of the year has been erased. A California judge threw out a $417 million talc powder verdict against Johnson & Johnson last Friday, just three days after a Missouri appeals court overturned a $72 million talc powder verdict. These rulings add momentum to J&J's defense against thousands of other cases brought by women who claim the company's talcum powder caused their ovarian cancer. Joining us to discuss these reversals and their impact are Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, and Howard Erickson, a professor at Fordham University Law School. Howard, the California judge tossed out the verdict on several grounds. Explain what they were. Yeah, the, the judge not only granted a new trial, the judge actually granted judgment as a matter of law in favor of Johnson & Johnson, meaning the judge decided that the evidence was not there to support the plaintiff verdict. The, the first and probably most important ground is that the judge said the plaintiff failed to meet the burden of proof on causation. The plaintiff could not prove that it's more likely than not that J&J uh, talcum powder caused the plaintiff's ovarian cancer. Um, the judge also said that there was no evidence to support the punitive damages award because there was not evidence to support a finding of malice on the part of the defendant. And the judge also said that um, that J&J, as opposed to its uh, consumer product subsidiary, had no duty to warn because until 19, um, since 1967, J&J, the parent company, was not the manufacturer of the product. So, Eric, if the judge found all these things, why did she even let the case go to the jury? You know, uh, that's a question that has always mystified me. I think judges tend to want the jury to come to the right answer itself. Um, you know, the judge takes on quite a burden when she says, I'm stopping the case you win. So, uh, you know, you, it's it's a bold judge who will do that. Uh, but in this case, did it, I, I think, because uh, for the for the reasons Howard mentioned. And and also uh, there was uh, some evidence that the jurors themselves acted. Well, they didn't act like jurors are supposed to act. So how big is this, Howard? I mean, how big a, a victory is this for J&J? Uh, it's it's enormous, and so at the at the opening of the segment, you mentioned you know they they got this four hundred and seventeen million dollar verdict thrown out, and a few days earlier in Missouri they got a seventy two million dollar verdict thrown out on appeal, and one is tempted to think, wow, five hundred million dollars that's that's no longer sitting there, but that's really not the story because those numbers, especially the four hundred and seventeen million that number was never going to stand up as the damages amount in this case. The really big deal is that in Missouri, the court found that there's no personal jurisdiction over the non-Missouri claims. And in California, Judge Nelson, who is overseeing the California consolidated proceedings, has shown that she is really skeptical about the science supporting the plaintiff's claims. Um, and that's an enormous deal. How... My, my question, Eric, is about it's, it's one judge saying, I don't see the science here. Does that one judge in California 
carry to a judge in New York who may hear a case or in another state? So a judge in New York or anywhere but actually uh, actually this district in California is not required to follow what uh, Judge Nelson did. This is a case in the, uh, the Superior Court of the State of California. They have no control over other judges. But it has informally, um, as, as Howard was uh, hinting at, informally it, it will have a lot of weight because, one, you know, this is a court in Los Angeles. This is a court, you know, that's a pretty sophisticated courtroom. And her language was, was pretty strong. So now if you're a judge in New York, you're in a position of having to say, well, I, I'm, I just don't see it that way. I see it completely differently. You have the right to say that. But you got to have an awful strong conviction to come out and say that. So it, it doesn't have what the lawyers call precedential effect in, in any formal sense, but in a practical sense, it sure does. And it's going to change the, if they're going to be settlement negotiations, it's changed the balance of power in any of those negotiations. Howard, let's go to the Missouri cases for a moment. And tell us about the reasoning of the Missouri Appeals Court and the effect that has on the cases there. What the Missouri court said is is that the Missouri state courts have no personal jurisdiction over Johnson and Johnson. That is, they have no power to bind Johnson and Johnson if the case does not arise out of some contact that the company had with Missouri. So what that means as a, as a practical matter is Missouri plaintiffs will be able to sue J and J in Missouri. But California plaintiffs and Alabama plaintiffs and New York plaintiffs will not. They'll, they either have to sue J&J in the company's home state of New, of New Jersey, or they can file it in their own home states or some other state that has a relationship to the claim. And this all flowed from, from a U.S. Supreme Court decision a couple of months ago in the Bristol-Myers Squibb case. And why did they sue in Missouri, Howard, in about... 30 seconds. Missouri became the magnet jurisdiction for plaintiffs in the talc litigation. It's not uncommon for plaintiffs' lawyers to decide that a particular court has either attractive jury demographics or, or judges or court rulings that make them more likely to win and more likely to win big. I've been talking with Howard Erickson, a professor at Fordham University Law School, and Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, about two verdicts against Johnson & Johnson being thrown out in less than a week. And those verdicts relate to talc powder cases where women claim that the company's talcum powder caused their ovarian cancer. Eric, so J&J seems to be winning at the appellate level, but when the cases go before a jury, they're losing. What does that tell you? It tells you that when you uh, go into the jurors and you tell a story about a really unfortunate woman who died of cancer, that the jurors are going to try to find a way to, to do something about it, especially when the other company is a big company. So there's a, there's a lot of emotion. Uh, and uh, when you get to the appeals court, appeals courts exist for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is to get away from the emotion and back to the law. So I think this is a pattern we will continue to see. 
Howard, th both sides, both the plaintiff in the California case and the plaintiff in the Missouri case that we've been talking about, have said that they're going to appeal the verdicts. What are their chances on an appeal? Well, broadly, in, it, yeah. So in Missouri, the decision was already from an intermediate court of appeals. The plaintiffs can can try to take it higher. I, I'd be surprised if they were successful at getting the jurisdictional decision overturned in Missouri. Um, as far as the California decision is concerned, there there are two different aspects to it. There was the judge's grant of judgment notwithstanding the verdict. That might get reversed on appeal. But then there was the judge's grant of a new trial, and that's going to be much harder to overturn on appeal. And when you think about it, the reason the judge decides both of those so is, um, is precisely to account for the possibility that the judgment notwithstanding the verdict will be overturned, will be reversed on appeal. So if, if the judge's decision gets reversed on appeal, that uh, that as a matter of law, Johnson & Johnson wins, then the judge's ruling is still in place that there ought to be a new trial. And since that's a discretionary ruling and there were a number of grounds that the judge gave for it, it's going to be much harder to reverse that. Eric, where does this leave the more than 5,500 tout claims in state and federal courts in the U.S.? Are they going to keep going forward with them? Oh, they're going to keep soldiering on. It, it takes more than a, a case like this to, to stop it. A lot of money's been invested in pursuing those cases. There are people who you know, have suffered. So, uh, you know, it, this is, a, this is a, a victory for J&J &J in what's going to be a long, long set of battles. Howard, if you're the plaintiff's attorneys in this what are you thinking now? Is there a change of strategy that you could employ? Well, it's, it's all about the science. I mean, so it, it's all about trying to marshal the scientific evidence as, as powerfully as possible. And I think the plaintiffs um, have to and, and, and will keep trying to do that. I'm not sure this so much changes the strategy for the lawyers who are in it. And I agree with Eric. Some of them are likely to be in it for the long haul. What it does change is the thinking by other lawyers who might be trying to decide whether this type, this sort of litigation is worth investing in, worth jumping into, and uh, these kinds of victories for the defendant um, have to make this uh, a much less appealing prospect. And of course, that's what, what any mass tort defendant hopes. Eric, have there been any smoking guns in these cases? You know, they, they had maybe a wet water pistol. They tried to make much of, of a couple of internal documents. Hasn't, hasn't really worked. And they have a big problem. Howard points out that it, this, the science at the core is a problem. And, and here's a big problem. The National Cancer Institute, well-respected, says on a public website, the weight of evidence does not support an association between talc exposure and an increased risk of ovarian cancer. The fact is there, there's evidence back and forth, but to have clear and convincing evidence, the preponderance of the evidence, when statements like that from respected science places are out there, makes the job of the plaintiff's attorneys really hard. Howard, is there any negotiation going on right now, or is J&J &J just holding firm? 
Well, I have no information about what the parties are talking about behind closed doors um, or even what they're thinking about. I can tell you that uh, from knowing about the history of mass tort litigation, what often happens is that a number of trials get fought out on an individual basis. A defendant is hoping to make the litigation go away by winning victories in court, but at some point, if the defendant loses a number of trials, then then inevitably the defendant at that point would start to think about uh, negotiating a global settlement by talking to some of the leading plaintiff's lawyers um, in the litigation. It remains to be seen whether that's where this is heading. Eric, does the arc of this litigation remind you of any past litigation? You know, this this happens quite often where, you know, there's a time there's a time to negotiate and a time not to negotiate. So when there's a judgment for $417 million out there, you're at the wrong point in the arc. That's not when Johnson & Johnson is going to sit down. Now they might. Will the plaintiffs sit down and talk? Well, they might have to take another loss or two. So this is part of sort of the typical back and forth arc that uh, Howard was referring to. So Howard, you have cases all over so we're talking about cases in California and Missouri. Are the plaintiffs' attorneys in these cases coordinating? Are they, you know, acting together, or are they just acting for their own clients' interests? Yeah, yeah, surely a mix. And the the most intense coordination comes in the federal cases because those are consolidated in what's called uh, multi-district litigation. And there is a federal multi-district litigation. Um, of talc cases pending in the District of New Jersey um, for Judge Wolfson. Um, but that's been quite small. It's really, that, that is really not where most of the cases um, are because the plaintiffs have been choosing to file in state court rather than federal court. Um, so the large groups are, uh, of cases have been in Missouri, New Jersey, and California. And both New Jersey and California do have consolidated proceedings, which automatically bring things together. But even beyond that, plaintiffs' lawyers tend to um, work together on strategy. And the, the image of plaintiffs' trial lawyers as lone wolves and entrepreneurial spirits, well, the entrepreneurial spirit thing is still true. Um, but plaintiffs' lawyers have been, have been working closely together for, uh, for decades now. Eric? How much money goes into these plaintiffs' cases? Oh, oh, gosh, tens of millions of dollars. These are these are really expensive cases, and and uh, that's a good thing to bring up because that's a factor. At some point, you have Johnson and Johnson financing its defenses by being well, Johnson and Johnson, and at another point, you have the plaintiffs' lawyers financing the cases any way they can. So. Yeah, at some point that kind of pushes one side closer to a negotiated settlement maybe than the other side. Howard, and have you, what, does this, the arc of this or the way this is going remind you of any recent or past litigation? Well, you know, one, one is tempted to think of Vioxx because that's a relatively recent um, mass tort litigation, meaning a decade ago, but where um, where there was where there were a number of big plaintiffs wins in the early trials, the defendant denied causation, had some big wins on specific causation, just like that. Um, but then ultimately, the defendant Merck turned around and negotiated a huge settlement. 
Um, I would think that's what the plaintiff's lawyers are hoping this will look like. But at this stage, the, the science isn't there. And it's always hard to know at an early stage whether as the science develops, whether it's going to look more like, you know, say, tobacco or asbestos, where you end up with an overwhelming consensus of the harmfulness of the product, or whether it's going to look more like bendectin or breast implants or certain others, where the scientific evidence just seems to get weaker and weaker as the litigation um, goes along. I think this decision on Friday is uh, is a hint that um, that at least Judge Judge Nelson in California thinks it's more like the latter. I want to thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law and for this discussion, this fascinating discussion. I had forgotten how many mass tort cases there have been. That's Howard Erickson. He's a professor at Fordham University Law School and Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. Thanks to both of you.